I can do things that wet without asking anybody, even my Coney wife. Coney Island, world's biggest barrel of fun. Anywhere else your imagination takes you. Okay, we've done that now, Mark. You get the whole show now, you hurry, hurry, hurry. Anything's possible at Disneyland. Welcome aboard the Themed Attraction Podcast, where we take you for a ride through the magical world of theme park design, that is. You've just set sail on a journey of discovery and discussion with theme park industry masters of the craft. I'm your skipper, Freddie Martin, and moving right along with me, as always, is theme park designer, master planner, and chief creative officer of Storyland Studios, Mel McGowan. Where are we headed today, Mel? Well, hold on to your hat, Freddie, because we've got a pretty exciting guest for our passengers today. None other than the legendary Eddie Sato, who is definitely a fixture in the themed entertainment industry. Uh, although he's pretty well known for his contributions at Walt Disney Imagineering um, for his creative direction on dozens of attractions, uh, including Main Street USA, Disneyland Paris, Mission Space at Epcot, uh, and the first ever trackless dark ride, uh, the Pooh Honey Hunt at Tokyo Disneyland. Um, Eddie was really a trailblazer in uh, extending the art of Imagineering beyond the Disney berm. Uh, And today, his company, Sato Studios LA, creates unique branded experience for companies like NASA, Pepsi, Ferrari, Porsche, and Aston Martin. Yeah, from sketching his first blue sky ideas for Knott's Berry Farm to designing luxury cruise ship experiences in the sky, Eddie's story is pretty amazing. All right, folks, keep your arms, hands, feet, and legs inside the boat, because this episode is about to leave the dock. Hit it, Sam. So, Mel, we started off with our first interview with Tom Morris. We've interviewed uh, Tony Baxter. We interviewed uh, uh, Chris Lang. We've interviewed a lot of interviews. Imagineers, and now we're finally to Eddie Soto. It's like we're starting a collection here, um, which is tons of fun because we get to hear from these people who created so much cool stuff uh, in theme parks around the world. Uh, yeah, quite a motley crew of characters we've uh, been able to assemble in this rogues <laughs> gallery for sure. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, and you know, I, I, you know how I am. I, I was a big Disneyland fan growing up. So every time you talk to an Imagineer, woo, I get all starry eyed and and goofy. And but you know, the the thing is, is that Imagineering is very cool. But what's getting exciting, and like you talked about in the intro. What about imagineering out in the real world? You know, taking those disciplines, that ability to great, bring great experiences to life. That's one of the fun things about talking to Eddie Sato is, hey, he brought imagineering out into the real world. You know, um, yeah. And really, that was really quite a paradigm shift, you know, when he started that little uh, free range studio uh, with NWDI to see if we could take the the lessons learned uh uh, at Disney and apply that to real world budget scopes and schedules for uh, clients like uh, and again I, I love that one of his first projects that LAX project was probably still his favorite project a lot of people think that uh, you need quote a, a big corporate uh, checkbook uh, or you know they, <laughs> they mistakenly think that Disney has unlimited budgets and funds but when you have a real world context and client with all the logistical security access challenges of uh, that LAX theme tower, and you're still able to create this multi-sensory 
uh, experience from, you know, curb to uh, kind of, uh, you know, observation lounge sky deck up there. Um, it, it's pretty impressive to just to experience what he was able to to pull off. I know for me personally, that was definitely my favorite uh, layover uh, or pre-flight, <laughs> uh, you know, spot uh, really in the city of L.A. That was awesome. Yeah, and he's done so much more. Um, you know, we were while we were talking on our interview, uh, we could see uh, one of his concepts or one of his designs for private aircraft and and bringing that sort of um, sexy and cool uh, spy uh, look to a, and luxury to a uh, private aircraft. Pretty pretty cool stuff. Well, let's get to it. Let's get to our interview with Eddie Sato. Eddie stopped in for a Zoom visit uh, a couple weeks back, along with Nathan Naverson. He's the founder of Themed Attraction. And these two go way back to the beginning of the internet, actually, when Eddie first left a comment on Nate's little fledgling theme park discussion board. And pretty soon, Eddie was a regular contributor to the site, offering tons of stories and insights from inside the theme park industry so it could be an education for folks on the outside. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Here it is, our interview with creative director, Eddie Sato. Well, Eddie, so great to have you with, uh, with us. Uh, I've been a huge uh, friend and fan, as I'm sure tons of our listeners in. We're, we've got an extra special uh, treat in terms of having our mutual friend, uh, Nate Neighborson, and uh, founder of ThemedAttraction.com with us. Uh, and I guess you guys have uh, dialogued uh, kind of at least a few decades back, uh, back to the roots of ThemedAttraction.com, right? When did you guys first connect? That's a good question. You know, uh, I, I do know that Nate was probably the first website that ever featured any information about me. So I don't think I was online anywhere until then, perhaps on the Walt Disney World magic thread, which had gone on for years and hundreds of posts, you know. <laughs> yeah, literally the, hundreds of posts. If I can give my side of the story a little bit, I was uh, writing as a 24-year-old kid, essentially, uh, everything that I knew about theme park design and Imagineering uh, at that age, just based on a little bit of experience working at a couple little uh, design shops around town and also working at Magic Kingdom and Disneyland. So I, I uh, put together some articles and I got feedback from this guy and he says oh this is all wrong <laughs> and um and uh and so i i disagreed with him and and you know defended my answer and then you know about the third or fourth reply i looked down and it said uh svp wdi and i said well wait maybe i maybe i had to pay attention to this guy <laughs> turns out it's eddie sato and uh and we became uh, pretty good friends i think after that and uh from there he you know started moderating our message boards and i think really put us immediately on the map as as someone that we need that needed to be paid attention to well i completely forgot about that as you can tell (laughs) (laughs) i guess i I guess i was stealth replying to so many people at the time i didn't remember exactly the history there but yeah uh sometimes i would see things and, and it's funny you know disney does have these um, kind of urban myths that go on that people believe are true. And uh, I know Tom Morris, the Imagineer, is very passionate about that. He's writing a book on who really did what, what designers, you know, weren't the headline designers that we all hear about, myself included sometimes, you know, who really did the drawings, who really did the design, where do these ideas really come from? Uh, because there are some urban myths. And sometimes for all the right reasons, we, we've heard things and I, I've been wrong too, repeating things. So, uh, I guess I feel like I want to 
try to give the the, the most accurate story. Yeah, well, Eddie, um, you have uh, had your fingerprints on some uh, amazing projects, and and what I love is uh, probably uh, almost more prolifically than. Uh, many Imagineers that a lot of folks know uh, and are fans of uh, have uh, had a chance to dabble in so many different industries uh, beyond uh, the traditional theme park, uh, you know, kind of realms. I'd love to, you know, not only go, you know, into the DeLorean, go back to the, you know, history of uh, kind of some of the things that you consider are kind of uh, paradigm shifting career highlights uh, uh, from Knott's Berry Farm to Disneyland Paris, uh, but but even post uh, imagineering, how you've been able to take uh, kind of those imagineering paradigms and kind of uh, somehow imagineer the real world that uh, not everybody gets to to hang out in. But as as I've uh, I'm kind of missing Encounter Restaurant right now and that uh, right. amazing soundtrack uh, from the elevator to the wow pool bar at the, the the cocktail lounge. I mean, man, it's great. Yeah, we'll details. have to talk about that. That's a really interesting one. I've always. Well, Pick one. Pick one. <laughs> well, let's start well, at Knott's. Okay. Well, you know, Knott's Berry Farm. Uh, I, I think if you want to talk about attractions that I was passionate about, my, my start at Knott's was uh, not the rides I proposed, you know, because uh, for budget or whatever. Those are the rides that got me, attractions that got me the job, like Flash Flood Rapids or the Rum Runners of 1921, these kind of insane ideas. Uh, the ones... The ones that actually happened were the ones that fulfilled a need, you know, and the soapbox racer ride Mm. uh, was something that there was a high center of gravity on the ride. It was previously a different ride. It was a cycle chase ride where you're sitting on a motorcycle, four four vehicles, very unique ride system, basically from Coney Island, uh, the steeplechase attraction. Um, People got to compete and gravity allowed them to compete. So the unique aspect of this existing ride was that, the guest actually had a share or a stake in the outcome by how they leaned on the ride. Yeah, right. So for, and imagine if you're a kid and you can't drive, imagine the excitement of that. The only problem was the ride had a, a high height requirement and was dangerous, frankly. Yeah. It was dangerous. The lawyers are concerned. So uh, when all my other ideas got turned down at knots and I was about to lose the job, I just won a few months earlier out of being a washer salesman at Sears with no experience. So you don't want to go back to that. And so, <laughs> no, you don't, you know. Uh, so the idea was, well, what, the, what could you do? So I had pre- went back to management and presented this notion of lowering the center of gravity and creating a ride vehicle, kind of like a little Mr. Toad car, kind of a little spanky in our gang, you know, 1920s, made out of crates, funky little race car that kids could be in. And this would allow many more people to ride it. And the audience that really desired having uh, one hand on the steering wheel, so to speak, and being able to uh, race was really an exciting thing. And this ride became kind of a surprise hit. It was done for a very low budget. It was yeah. my very first attraction. I, was, I had no experience in doing this, but designed the vehicles and kind of helped sell it and and pitch the idea as an indoor or no outdoor dark ride. Yes. People, yes. Outdoor dark ride. What is that? Well, it's <laughs> going to be the first outdoor dark ride in history. It's Mr. Toad outside, except you're racing and you're going to yeah. get to do something. And the not family being, you know, the not family is, well, okay, uh, what's that? You know, let's pursue it. And so I was very proud of the idea of kind of doing this dark ride with sets outside, you know, doing it in daylight 
And you adding beat a soundtrack. Hagrid's uh, coaster by a few decades. Yeah, well, you Well, you know, yeah. uh, tried. And, uh, <laughs> and it was super successful, not because of me necessarily, uh, but it was super successful because of this notion of competition. And it was something that stayed with me after leaving Knott's, trying to do rocket-powered motorcycles on the People Mover track at Disney yeah, right, right. and at Tokyo Disneyland, trying to get this rocket bike thing going. Well, that didn't happen. But um, other Imagineers picked up the, the the notion and did the rocket rods, which I don't think leveraged that in, in, in a way that I think that that really was the idea. But, you know, these things kind of live on. So I'm very proud of the fact that I always try to do breakthrough things or do something that's different. And, and you know, because it keeps me interested, frankly, and, <laughs> and I want to learn and I want to do something different. And, and I felt the audience wanted that. And how can you give the audience something that, that they couldn't have? So the, the soapbox ride, even though I was super disappointed with it at the time, I just didn't like it when it was done. I didn't want, I wanted the execution to be way better. Mm. It was super successful in spite of itself because the ride system was compelling and the happy accident was, oh, you just allowed kids to ride something kids couldn't go on. And they, I think it got 120% of the gate. They were able to re-ride this over, over, and, and, over. over and over. So to my own surprise today, people tweet me or if I tweet pictures from it, people have a tremendous love from their childhood of that ride. And I think it's more because of the ride system. Uh, and I think it was fun. We put a soundtrack to it. I think music is so important. And yeah. having uh, a ragtime piano, you know, crazy soundtrack to it made it a fun ride and, and allowed it to be um, uh, something that kids could enjoy. And it was also a younger thrill ride. So Yeah, I like to call it a uh, monorail roller coaster, a mono, monorail tubular. Um, and uh, I, had, I had great memories there. I think I uh, first held the hand of a girl in the queue for uh, for <laughs> box racers. So thank you very much for that. Before we move on, I, I, I know we kind of have a shared uh, love of uh, the uniqueness that at least was and, and – uh, and uh, probably still is and definitely can still be of, of knots. And just a, what a unique story there. And I know you've been part of that renewal with uh, being able to take the uh, probably the somewhat uh, delicate sacred space of Mrs. Knott's Chicken House and uh, entering, bringing that into the 21st century. But before we head on to Disney territory and beyond, you mind just sharing your thoughts on, uh, on working with the Knott family and that whole experience? Well, well, first of all, I owe everything to the Knott family. Hmm. Okay. Wow. Okay. Imagine today where you have to send in a resume and an algorithm decides whether you get a job or not, or even talk right. to a human. <laughs> it's kind of like trying, you know, trying to find a, a, on a support desk, get somebody to respond to you as a human because your problem is different. Well, if your talent is different and you have an abstract talent and I, I was just passionate. I knew when I was a little kid, I wanted to create attractions and rides. That was something I wanted to do. Well, the only hearing ear, including Disney, was Knott's Berry Farm. Mm. And their family management, and actually most of my clients today are families um, that, that own businesses, they understand that. They take mm -hmm. a chance on people. And I feel so sorry for kids today that, that corporations won't take a chance on you or let you develop your talent. And here I bring in sketches, these sketches as a washer salesman. And I go, <laughs> here are these ideas. And Rick Campbell, who was the intuitive uh, designer there, 
He says, well, you know, I'm more of an architect. I do architectural work. I don't have ideas like this, but you draw like an Imagineer. You draw these track plans. I don't know of anybody that draws and thinks that way. You think like a ride designer. Why don't you sit in the corner and come up with the ideas and I will productize them and get them pitched. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how the soapbox got done. That's how the rum runners got pitched and all these other rides, some of which, you know, didn't get built. But um, I feel like I owe a great debt of gratitude to family run businesses that go with their gut instinct instead of just throwing people out uh, because you don't have a particular diploma or a particular experience, um, uh, you know, or whatever. So I, I feel, and, and that's actually even Tony Baxter hiring me. He did that by instinct yeah. and experience, but I think you also have to have talent. I feel I'm in an art, I'm in an art sort of family that comes from the film background and so forth. So I do have some gifts from God, but you know, I, I try to develop those and aim those toward management. You got to have a hearing ear. And the other thing about knots, if you, if you don't mind, if I run on about this. Oh, please. Oh, no. So knots, you know, knots is a unique little animal in itself. And I'm not sure every operator understands it. They learn about it. They figure it out. But I wanted to be an Imagineer so bad, you guys. I would bring Disney wannabe design into knots until Luann Davis, one of the designers there, goes, Eddie, you're missing something. Hmm. And I'd done this corporate-looking display for oral wheat or something. And she says, Eddie, you don't have the farm mentality. Hmm. I go, what is the farm mentality, you know? And you go walk around ghost town and all the S's are painted backwards on the sign. She goes, <laughs> this is not Disneyland, you know? It's a relaxed place. It's like your next door neighbor, like a family built a theme park, yeah. okay? It doesn't have this slickness to it and people love it and they resonate with it. There's no meter running to do nine rides when you walk in. You go, you know, that's the greatest looking bench in the world under the Bougainvillea <laughs> and I'm going to go sit on it and watch the world go by. You know, Knott's runs the train through the crowd, at least they used to. And when I got there and I looked at that locomotive going right through the crowd, there's a relationship with the guests that doesn't exist at Disneyland where everything is so designed where you have, you know, take no responsibility for yourself. You just see that locomotive and you go, oh, it's a big living, breathing thing. Knott's is about reality, almost like going to a national park where you come into this antique world and it just sort of is what it is. You know, I mean, it's funny, Disneyland, you go to visit a princess, Knott's Berry Farm, you go visit like an inmate yeah. uh, doing time, <laughs> smoking a cigarette. You know, yeah. in jail, some old prospector, <laughs> sad-eyed Joe. I mean, what a different kind of thing, you know? Uh, it's 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 very interesting. thing. I had to learn that. It taught me wonderful lessons about as a designer. I wanted to do what I wanted my mom to see or what I wished I could do. And, and right. to, to a degree, the Encounter Restaurant is completely that. But uh, it's I think it's good to have a personal vestment in anything or bring your life experience to it but you can't bring Disney everywhere. It's not appropriate. Mm -hmm. Disney, you channel the brand you're working for. You channel the guest experience they are looking for, not just what you'd like to do because it's your favorite ride. You're going to, I mean, I put Easter eggs in everything. There's Easter eggs all over these attractions, but, but no, you got to be humble <laughs> about it. So, you know, what are, what are the people, what do the people want? What's going to make them happy? Yeah. What is it? Well, what are people searching for when they walk through that gate? Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's something that you had kind of talked to. I think with, uh, with the, um, uh, I just, I lost it. Um, your, uh, the attraction at, uh, at Knox. Um, 
Soapbox racers. Soapbox. Thank you. I, I lost it. But you captured something um, inadvertently, or, or perhaps you know, um, on purpose. But but you got two things I think really right. One was repeatability. You know, yeah. people want to go through that again and again. But also, it's that idea of aspirational design that you talk about, where people get to do things that they don't necessarily get to do. You know, you lowered the height requirement, and now all of a sudden they can, that opens them up. Um, talk about aspirational design a little bit, because I think that's one of your key sort of um, ideas when it comes to development of new attractions and, and also design. Well, you know, it's kind of funny. You see the line for Snow White, you see the line for um, Peter Pan. And I've always believed it isn't just the size of the vehicle or the, because the capacities are relatively similar, but it really one of them is you can die and the other ones you can fly, you know, and, <laughs> and right. You go, Ooh. And, and I, Dave Bradley, who is one of the original, you know, Carney operators, ride developers that Walt Disney leaned on. I asked, I worked with this guy and he, I asked him, I said, what's important about this? And one of the things he said was that guests want to look great in a vehicle. They, they imagine themselves in that vehicle. So if you look at yourself in the pirate ship or inside some sort of a little wood cigar box going into Snow White, you know, you, you kind of have to say, well, you know, what's in it for me? And I think people do they, they look at that. They do think about that. But aspiration, wow. whether you're doing an Aston Martin dealership or a Porsche dealership, and we've done, or Ferrari, we've done all those. You know, I try to look at what would, what, what childhood aspiration is in the mind of every billionaire? What, hmm. you know, and I find if I'm doing someone's residence, all this Disney stuff, like, you know, no, nobody does a house that doesn't have a secret panel with a book that you pull because they saw it on, on TV or in a, in a Hardy <laughs> Boys movie or something. You know, they're like, oh, I got to have that. I want all the things. I want to do all the things I couldn't do that were in a movie. And I, and I think sometimes this whole storytelling thing gets sidetracked because people say, well, you know, the story, uh, you know, people, we, we have to write some completely esoteric story and then force people to go through it. But yeah. in fact, a lot of times the guest has these aspirations and you want to leave some room there for them to link what they dream of to what it is you're doing and leave it open, you know, let, let, let them do it. So I think the soapbox thing was also fun because I could take a lot of things I liked as a kid. I, I was in high school listening to Dr. Demento, kind of a weird radio program of novelty music and thought, well, I'm going to put Dr. Demento on a ride. I'm going to put Spike Jones, <laughs> uh, the dance of the hours on a ride. No one's done that. In other words, if you have no budget, what can you do that's outrageous and weird and would like educate the audience in a wacky way, you know, and, and be about the twenties and be about the period or, you know, just be able to do things like that or, or introduce art deco streamlined design, which we did in the, in, in the knots ride to the little kitty cat town. And have drunken cats in a bar having milk on tap. I go, there's no, there's drunken pirates. Why can't we have drunken cats? I was kind of looking at what Mark Davis did in his rides. You know, and there's a little bit of influence there. But like, how can you just make things, don't take yourself so seriously. Have a little bit of fun in there because that's really what they're paying for, you know. And, and uh, even on the cheapest ride, and that wacky box thing was like a million bucks. Only a million three. And I got yelled at for the budget after that, too. Uh, I was only 21 years old, you know. I mean, wow. like, I'm going, like, what did I learn in high school that, that I loved in high school? I can put on this ride and, and, and have people kind of young kids listen to it or play Dixieland jazz. I've, I thought, put the Firehouse Five in there, you know. 
Um, and of course, kids love reckless driving. Mr. Toad is like yeah. Grand Theft Auto when you go to hell. <laughs> simulated. Yeah, I go, well, that's not a very upbuilding thing. I'd, I'd rather talk talk up to the audience. We won't put hell in there, but well, you know, we'll let you do some reckless fun things. And so I guess that's that's a piece of it. I love it. I love the fact that you tried to introduce mobsters uh, into Main Street. Uh, <laughs> if we could uh, pivot over to um, Disneyland Paris and uh, in a way, you know, whether it's uh, your natural aesthetic, uh, leaning more towards uh, retro future uh, encounter kind of stuff, somehow you got, you became Mr. Main Street, I guess, after uh, some of the work on that power plant uh, project in Baltimore. It's true. Uh, but, but I'd love to hear uh, for those that, don't know about kind of the the main street that uh, coulda woulda should have been uh, there in Paris that updated 1920s uh, version. Um, I'd love. I mean, that, that seems like such a radical thing, kind of uh, moving beyond the idea of kind of uh, Walt's childhood and and you know some abstraction of uh, you know Walt's origin story in Main Street USA to update that for the the European context and. And then also the fact that I believe you've been to Shanghai Disneyland and seen the reinvention there, at Mickey Avenue. Uh, would love love your unvarnished. I, ha- I have not. Did, yeah, I have not been to Shanghai. Sorry. It's interesting, uh, kind of uh, from a creative perspective. You know, totally different context again. You know, and uh, just wondering your thoughts. Sure. On- well, I mean, I, th- I think again, it's about the audience, isn't it? It's about your audience, and of course, the twenties Main Street. Um, if you look at the Victorian Main Street that that we were prescribed to do, and to be completely selfish and honest about it, I get this job at at WED. I think it was one of the last WED employees uh, to do this. I thought I thought I was going to get Discovery Land because of the Jules Verne Power Plant project. You could look that up. Get, I had done a submarine and all these laboratories and really you know fun stuff. But then to get Main Street, that's like you know uh, doing a shopping center. I thought okay. Um, every prisoner has a right to escape, you know, and I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And they're like, yeah, well, you get to copy the Florida facades. I go, what a waste. What do I get this job for to sit there and photocopy Walt Disney world? Um, let's do something different. And then if you look at, and Tony Baxter is very film oriented and he's like, well, you know, what movies do Europeans look at to understand America? Well, the music man, I mean, 1963, and so all the movies that Europeans were interested in were movies that were about the 20s, were much more the active 20s, mm-hmm. the jazz age, things that were more culturally uh, interesting to Europeans. So that kind of led us in that direction. And, uh, and I thought even if you had to take the Victorian world, you could certainly Americanize it, not being political, but using Americana, like cultural things like baseball or American uh, Americans are more, I want to say capitalistic, but are more, have more advertising, you know, the, mm-hmm, it's about mm-hmm. entrepreneurship and things like yeah. that. So to try to put more English and American brands in there, like Coca-Cola, baseball, these are things that people associate with, but that, you know, when I didn't get the twenties thing, we integrated, I, I still tried to make it an interesting job, you know, for the, like being in five years of, of, of the military, you know, you have to do that. <laughs> I thought, well, I'm going to make it the very best and most surprise, like those soapbox. I'm going to make it the most surprising main street that I can. I'm not going to mail it in. I'm not just going to put moldings and drapes up uh, for the sake of that. Cause that doesn't impress Europeans. They live yeah. in a world rent control has more elaborate, con- you know, interiors than main street. So how do we um, use every opportunity as, as something 
worth taking back then one of the 36 pictures on your camera. So mm-hmm. I told the team, I said, if it's not worth a photograph, it's not worth building. It's got to be not just beautiful, but different beautiful, engaging beautiful, unique beautiful, or American beautiful culturally. Mm. So that was up in the 20s to me, and people misunderstand this. I'd seen Some Like It Hot as a kid. And this is a movie that involved funny yeah. gangsters that are chasing <laughs> around two guys dressed as women to avoid getting uh, murdered because they saw the St. Valentine's Day thing. And, you know, if you look at silent film, Keystone Cops were really fun. So it's it's like, you know, any like the pirate ride. That's not, you know, it, it's it definitely has larceny associated with it, but it's funny larceny. <laughs> and uh, crime doesn't pay. We have a lot of funny Keystone cops that are chasing dopier gang, dopey cops or dopier gangsters. You know? <laughs> and uh, you know, and we make it we make it funny because prohibition was an anomaly in American culture. And you you could go to a speakeasy and see basically the Golden Horseshoe with flappers. I mean, that's yeah. all it is. It wouldn't have been dangerous. But I feel like Michael Eisner, to his credit, you know, at the time felt the formula was really important. And, it, and also the main street was expensive. And we had added rides, we had elevated trains. Frankly, I was trying to escape. I wanted to land. I didn't want to do a retail. Experience. Right, right. So I'm putting speakeasies and Tony was all for that. <laughs> hey, Eddie, you know, see how far you can go. And we got, at least we got these beautiful arcades out of it. But, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I, I didn't want to be uh, confined to that. So I'm going to make the most out of, you know, my dad always said this. He goes, look, Play is nothing more than work you want to do. So you got to find any assignment. I would say this to young designers. You know, you don't get, nobody hands you the masterpiece to do when you start. You got to find something interesting. Like the soapbox was a way of not getting fired or not getting (laughs) let go. I'm like, well, you don't want to build anything I want to do. You're going to let me go? Well, go see if you can fix that ride over there. That might save you. So filling needs is the essence of sales and the essence of survival. And all of us as designers, uh, yeah, you might start at a design studio and they go, hey, you're on food carts. You're like, you know what? I don't want to do the food cart. I want to work on the George, the, the Iron Man ride. Well, no. Well, why don't you make the coolest, most interesting food cart that's going to yeah. make them three times the money uh, because the little, the little plastic rubber food on the food cart talks to you? I don't know. Something. <laughs> yeah. You go, what's cool about a food cart? Why don't you be the coolest food cart guy in the world? And unfortunately, and fortunately, because I kind of fell in love after five years of Victorian, I can I could still draw it without books, you know, yeah. uh, you know that, that I kind of got branded that way. So I, I took that into the retail world when I quit Disney and said, now I, I understand, I'm going to make that work for me. You know, now I understand how to do really interesting retail. That reminds me of uh, Tom Morris talking about designing the first uh, churro cart uh, for Disneyland, uh, but really, yeah, yeah, one of the the heavy lifting uh, creative uh, things that uh, you didn't mention was the the idea of letting people basically spend the night uh, in in that Main Street uh, environment. Uh, well, but that, that was a mi- from? well. That's see, crazy. that's a mistake too. There's really another like the soapbox ride came out of desperation, right, or a solution to a problem. Uh, part of the story that gets left out a lot was. Um, the first thing we were asked to do is create a gigantic cover or some kind of a inclement weather cover. And they predicted operations predicted, you know, more projections, you know, giant lines at those ticket booths. Well, that meant you'd have to build the world's imagine putting a roof over the common 
area at Disney World or Disneyland where people would wait to buy tickets. Well, that became a giant roof and it had a Del Coronado Grand Floridian mm-hmm. sort of look mm-hmm. to it. So I looked at this roof and then the estimate came in, it was like $50 million roof or some crazy roof, you know, and there's no one's going to pay for that. So in the desperation of not getting it rejected, I said, well, why don't we just put a another level on that? If you're building the roof, why don't we put like Club 33 suites? And I was trying to really protect Main Street from being having something out of scale in front of it. So like, mm. let's go up to three stories. So Nina Ray Vaughn did a nice little painting that showed that modest level of suites above this with a restaurant or something up there and said, well, we could do that. And that's kind of where this idea of looking into the park came from, but it wasn't meant to be a giant hotel. And the management liked that idea. So, well, that would help pay for the roof. I go, yeah, you put the ticketing under a hotel because the business model of a hotel could pay for that. Right, right. You know, and so that turned into, because one of the board members was Gary Wilson, who was a Marriott, ex-Marriott, like, oh gosh, we'll make it, it'll be, you know, five <laughs> stories. And it'll be, you know, I'm like, oh my goodness. There, where's the little, <laughs> how does do? this little, yeah, exactly. How, where's the little scaled down train, the little, HO scale train work with this massive hotel. So we went back and and as we designed the hotel and worked with the Disney development and others, you know, we put, I was insistent on putting tiny little mullions on the windows, muttons on the windows. So the scale from a distance would work with Main Street when you're looking back out of the park. Mm. But this idea, and by the way, it really happened. I mean, I was a catalyst, but primarily Tony Baxter is the you know, was the catalyst force that really fought for it against even Disney operations management. People are going to be hanging their brassiers out there to dry. And, you know, (laughs) well, then fine, we won't open those windows or we won't do that. So Tony really weathered the storm. It's to his credit that that happened. And Michael Eisner wrote a wonderful um, memo to both Tony and I saying, I'm glad you stuck up for it. um, Because when they drive a stake through your heart, they know you sat up and tried three more times. Congratulations. So management <laughs> loved the idea we fought for that. But oh, it's to Tony's cool. credit that, uh, that that happened. How do you tell a story when people listen with more than their ears? Stories change lives. They make us remember, but only when they're felt and not just heard. Storyland Studios builds the impossible. We turn big ideas into reality. We tell stories in three dimensions to stir the senses so you can walk into places you've only seen in your dreams, in real life and real time. Storyland's artists, architects, and artisans take stories out of the imagination and build tangible dreams that leave lasting impressions and memories that endure for years. What's your story? Storyland Studios is themed entertainment, destination design, production, and fabrication. Connect with the team at Storyland Studios to get started building your impossible dream today. Visit StorylandStudios.com or call now, 800-218-1932. That's 800-218-1932. Storyland Studios, your big idea's best ally. That's familiar to you too, Mel, right? With the uh, California Adventure. Uh, yeah, doing the Grand Californian was no easy task, settling uh, <laughs> the, the park and downtown Disney there. But uh, hats off to you. What an achievement. Uh, any uh, any uh, other, I mean, I know you, you have a passion for 
Disney and and uh, really Dosen taking some of that OD and a pixie dust and sprinkling it to the outside world. But before we move uh, beyond the berm, um, I mean, any other uh, projects that uh, that you want to touch bases on? I mean, I had a chance to experience that that crazy trackless poo attraction. You know, uh, I mean, that's crazy. Well, you know, and it's one of the reasons I left actually. So uh, we had, when I came back from Paris, you know, I was tired of, I did my time, you know, doing that. And it was also working on Indiana Jones at the time, developing different concepts for that. And that would go, that was the, the project that went back and forth many times before Disneyland. And then Tony put me down on Disneyland. So I had Disneyland for a while doing the Adventureland rehab and, and, and sharing the portfolio at the time for Indiana Jones. Uh, but primarily, um, we did some work on it, then he came back. But this one development, they, they had asked me to get involved in Tokyo Disneyland. And Tokyo Disneyland, they just wanted someone to come in and creatively think differently about everything, just question it all and basically get Oriental Land Company to start spending some money because they would not approve anything. They just, and by the way, they want things off the shelf. And again, here's another accident. So they want something new and different. And Disney was in the austerity world after Disneyland Paris. So there really wasn't much development. And there, and there was pretty much repurposing iron rides like rock and roller coaster, things like mm-hmm. that. There were, you know, there really wasn't a lot out there. And but they wanted an e-ticket. The Japanese were very uh, adamant about that, and rightfully so. So I couldn't find any new technology that could be a wow, except, and it wasn't even open yet, Aquatopia, which was a trackless bumper car ride that moved about one mile an hour on an inch of water. It really was pretty, you know, by, by thrill standards, pretty dull, but it did have an interesting technology because the vehicles were trackless in water. Mm. I thought, man, if you could only take a, a ride system like that and put it you know, from going from the very first outdoor dark ride, I thought, well, let, let's just take an outdoor ride and make it an indoor ride, the reverse of the soapbox ride. Let's make an indoor trackless dark ride. Imagine the potential of dark rides with no tracks. But then let's, because a guest has never seen one before, let's make the entrance. Let's spend no money on the exterior mm-hmm. and make it look like a typical fantasy land ride with a mural behind the ride vehicles. Right, right. A crummy queue with a bunch of paintings, little storybook paintings, and let's lower your expectations so you think it's going to be a tracked fantasy land cheapy ride sea ticket. Let's get them to think it's a sea ticket. But when the vehicles leave the depot and dispatch, then they start to move apart from each other and start doing un- otherworldly things. They gather, you know, and, and, and of course, you know, for fantasy land, they wanted this thing to appeal to children. Um, Winnie the Pooh was the most bankable star they had because he sold yeah. the most merchandise. The thing is, Winnie the Pooh, there's no story there. You know, I mean, the story for a half an hour episode of Pooh is like, I, I can't sit down. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the whole, you know, for a four-year-old, Pooh can't sit down today or he's stuck in a hole. Or I mean, just there's no <laughs> yeah. action. There's no kinetics. So, so I'd looked at the, and I'm a big fan of Winnie the Pooh myself, just even as a child. So the blustery day was the most kinetic theme we had. So I went back to the team and said, okay, if we do the blustery day and we have, we use, um, and Rolly Crump had really proven to me you could do daylight dark rides because the Berry Tales at Knott's was a mix of black light and white light. Mm-hmm. So I already knew that could work. So we said, let's take the first scene and we'll start with daylight and slowly turn the dial down on the daylight until you're all the way in blacklight. I'm going to try to challenge everything. And by the way, Tony taught me that it's okay to take these crazy risks. 
And he takes a lot of risks. I mean, he bets the ride on one effect or something. Yeah. I thought, I'm going to try this, you know, and and I even reviewed it after we were done with concept with Tony. I wasn't working for him. I was independent on Tokyo. But I said, hey, what do you think? Am I really, am I going to blow it? He goes, no, Eddie. Is I, I think these are all, you know, these are, you, you can, this could be figured out. So this trackless notion of let's, let's milk it. We're going to spin you. We took one vehicle and put, uh, you know, animatronics as guests. So we hijack a character and you see that. Anyway, you can go online and watch it. So I, so when I, when that was developed and I still wasn't finished yet, came back to WDI and they'd given me my own little studio to develop ideas, which was really fun. And I could work with any division. So that was a great, Marty Sklar, that was a great vote of confidence. So I'd went back to the management and this was mostly run by Disney development company folks at the time and said, look, this is the future. You've got to invest in this. Trackless mm. is the future. Here's five directions we could go in with trackless and start developing all of this now and revolutionize the industry. I still have the presentation. I still have yeah. this little thing from it. And, I mean, and there was really no interest that. there. Yeah. Oh, no. And I said, there was no interest. This is the year 1999. Yeah. I go, it's going to open on other people's money. What is more beautiful than other people's money opening in Japan? So there's no risk to you. We're going to open it in Tokyo. It's and it ended up being a giant hit that prevented cannibalization of Tokyo Disney Sea. So Tokyo Disneyland held its own, didn't lose attendance because of that ride for the years that TDS opened. So it was a huge, and they put that in their annual report. I'm not making it up; it's written there. So wow. to me, I'm, I'm of anything I worked on, forgetting about Main Street and all that other sort of. I consider those refinements, but the 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 technology being being the very first. I feel like you know. Our team and Dan Jew and John Georges, a whole bunch of different people that worked on this, Kelly Ford, uh, a lot of different people worked on getting Pooh to open because I quit before it opened. I was so dis disappointed. I'm like, you know, if you can't sell that as the future, no one wants to invest in it, you know, why bother? So I went off to do other things. I have to do, I went off to the internet. I had to go do something new. I guess it's my weakness. I just, I have to be doing something new. So uh, I'm very proud of the fact that if you look back at the rise of the resistance, and by the way, I'm not taking credit for any of that stuff. I'm just saying trackless has become the new motion simulator yeah, or right. the, new, the new standard for breakthrough attractions in our world. And we showed it and begged management to do it more than 20 years ago. Yeah, just for anyone yeah. listening, if uh, for the vast majority of Disney park guests, if you're more familiar with kind of the, the rubber stamp, the, uh, versions of the poo ride. That's not what we're talking about. You, you kind of really need to look at the ride footage or you think more Get rise there. of the resistance. It's on, it's on sotostudios.com. We have a little story about it. I had to put it on there because I'm proud of what the team did and I'm proud to have been uh, the catalyst for that and saying and begging them to do trackless rides. It just wasn't something that they, they could see the future of. But I also think management at the time, Paul Pressler, you had operators running it. They, they wanted to do lesser versions of universal attractions versus doing the future at the time. They just couldn't see the potential of a trackless ride. And by the way, there's still things in trackless that have never been tried. And I'm trying to, you know, obviously working with other, other ride manufacturers, people like that, to do the future in those areas. I still believe in it. How do you, um, I mean, you, you were early on in terms of the, just taking the imaginary principles, even within Disney and doing things like urban design and Times Square um, and uh, the, the Encounter Restaurant in a landmark, uh, Googie iconic structure. When you're, when you're trying to describe 
applying imaginary principles and you're stepping outside of kind of literal cinematic IP properties, uh, you know, and, and um, working quote in the real world. Um, and, and someone's looking at you, you know, expecting you to, I don't know, draw some Mickey Mouse shape building or, or some cartoon thematic, you know, thing. How do you explain to them the principles that are, that actually transfer and carry over? Well, I tried to articulate experiential design as systems of experience and really try to write like a white paper on what the, what the formula is for this. And of course, you know, talent is the missing ingredient. It's kind of like going to a restaurant and they go, yeah, they all have the cookie recipe, but somehow the, the Nestle Tollhouse version is the best. So I'd like to think that talent side that we add, the real creativity is what makes the formula work, but it's a simple thing. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's starting by, by being the guest and thinking of all aspects of an experience and that architects and agencies, ad agencies don't really do that. They, they, they hold one piece of the pie, but if you're an Imagineer, you, you are responsible for all of it. So I kind of took holistic process out of Disney without taking anything proprietary out of it. It just being the way I've always been, I guess, and taking that into fields like aircraft, commercial aviation, like uh, private jets, uh, you know, those are run by engineers. Engineers hire interior designers. And for the only reason you see beige jets everywhere is resale value. Mm-hmm. No one's ever mm-hmm. had another idea. And so I presented to the Rob Report, this magazine that does luxury stuff. I said, what if a yacht could fly? What if I could take the legacy of what a Cartier watch looks like or a Bentley, all that design detail <laughs> that, that is born from uh, history and then and take like a classic yacht and put it inside of an airplane? People go, what? That's not very good for resale value. I go, I don't care. I'm not selling it. I'm not trying to make a business. I just think it's cool and I just want to do it. And I think people would like it. It went viral three times. And I mean, I'm actually more known for these jets in a weird way, just through the press than I am for theme parks. You know, as far as we, we get awards for some of the, the actual designs and stuff that we do. And it's because I think we're approaching it from a different way. And I think in, in the world today, now experiential design has been a word stolen by ad agencies, you know, and they, they think your underarm deodorant is an experience, you know, or something. And it is, you know, but they don't understand what it means to think that way and design it that way. So I like to think, and I'm not the only person doing this. I'm not, you know, I'm no genius here. I'm just saying that I, 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 I look at it differently. And, and I think what happens is the results on the other end of the sausage maker taste better when you think holistically. Well, I, um, I, I just read, you know, we kind of moved uh, future-wise. Um, one of the most futuristic things I've seen of yours was the, uh, um, the LAX uh, uh, restaurant. What, what's it called? Shoot, the experience? Encounter. Well, Encounter. Well, Boy, it's, well, it's, it's gone. I know. Um, talk, right. talk a bit about that because all, what, all of a sudden we were getting my, my red eye flights just aren't the same, man. No. Well, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's a civic, there's it, a, a, a functional thing that, um, really was fantastic on that, on the heels of fantastic. That's what you got out of this functional restaurant at a airport. Well, form, form should follow, not function, but fantastic. Come up with something you think amazing people will show up for and then apply the function to that. Mm-hmm. And so Stuart Bailey, who was an Imagineer working in our little, our little hit squad team, our little concept team we had, I think he brought the opportunity to us that um, this big concession company that does big airport concessions, you know, 
was going to try to win the contract for the theme building and wanted Imagineering to do it. And I talked management into the idea that, you know, we should prove to the rest of the Disney company that Imagineering can do little jobs in politicized environments like airports. I mean, those are highly regulated. So that, you know, they said, well, as long as you don't go on overhead, you can get someone else to pay for it, you can do it. So we pitched like, uh, you know, uh, this retro experience, Googie meets Forbidden Planet kind of a thing. And I had to go before the airport and say, I said, well, you know, I want to do a place where James Bond and Barbarella would meet at the bar. <laughs> and they go, well, what is that? And I go, well, it's a Barbarellegant experience. <laughs> you know, it's not going to be literally, it's not a history lesson. It's not a theme park. It's going to be this, what you wished. It's the optimism of jet travel before it was ruined by the, you know, by the uh, TSA and everything else that we have in our world today, when it was glamorous and the jet set was glamorous. So one of the things I do is I make playlists for myself to inspire these things. I put together a playlist of, at the time, Martinis and Lounge in the 1996, when we're, that's the time period we're talking about, were just coming of age. Tiki bars in LA, the martini scene was beginning yeah. to be a counterculture movement. So I joined it. Swingers. I started going, I, well, yeah, I started joining, even before those movies, 95, 96, these parties and things were going on. And the martini called guys were dressing up in fezes to look like they were part of lodge meetings. It was very cool and weird. And the recipes were just coming out. Mixology wasn't even a word yet. Right. But I thought, ooh, you know, if you can get, this is like before the word influencers was started. I go, if, we can, if I can get these people to show up at LAX to an airport, this will be weird. So with that confidence, went back and pitched this martini thing and said, well, wait a minute, why not? You know, it's like putting Spike Jones on the wacky box. Let's put a gourmet chef at the airport. He goes, well, airports have lousy food. We don't do that. I go, yeah, you will. So I had just been introduced to this gourmet chef who was one of the number one chefs in LA. I said, would you be, would you invent intergalactic dining at LAX? He goes, oh, would I? I'd love, he goes, will you let me do what I want? He goes, I'm doing purple potatoes. I go, perfect get up a good bar manager in purple. So I said, so then we bring the gourmet chef, the head of the concessionaires, everybody gets involved in it. The worst thing is though, it's the airport itself. Yeah. So the challenge is nobody, everyone thinks that the building, which looks like a, uh, a spider or something from uh, Eero Saarinen. I said, well, you know, everyone thinks it's a control tower. So I walked around LAX asking people, you know, what do you think it is? They thought it was. I said, well, let's get the best lighting designer to relight it. So Michael Valentino did that. I got the best interiors designer I could, could to work with. And I, I said, well, you know, you, can we collaborate? And we did, Ellen, Ellen Guevara at the time. And so we worked, we worked on this together. And so we relit the whole thing from the ground. So if you look at pictures of it, it's all designed to be viewed, to make your decision looking up at it. But the biggest problem is you're still at the airport. How do you get that out of your mind? So again, like the wacky box, how do you take sound and use music to set the stage? Because really, like scenes in a movie, you have to ride an elevator into this building. So we did kind of this strange music that really sets the guest off because your next stop is kind of like the Twilight Zone. When the door is open, there's lava lamps and lounge music and you're, the hostesses are in these space outfits. I mean, it's completely the opposite <laughs> of LAX. You're in another world. But you don't have a berm like the train station at Disneyland. So the elevator really was the berm. And people talked a lot about that. And so I was very happy to see that the counterculture brought John Travolta, who is a pilot himself, to rent it for its first party. So wow. every art director in Hollywood, all these celebrities, Sergio Mendez, who was the, you know, the poster child of the 
of that musical movement of Bossa Nova played live in the restaurant. It's opening night. So once all these celebrities, Tarantino was there, everybody yeah. was there. And they all said, this is the greatest thing. Let's go to the airport for dinner. This is pre 9-11. Let's go to the airport for dinner and hang out at LAX. So they had valet parking and a, a completely discreet way of getting into and out of this place. So it'd be kind of the London Times is writing about it. Vogue right. magazine is saying it's the place to go. It was like, again, it was kind of like the soapbox in that you, the inadvertent thing was, yeah, you see it with these influencers, but who knows what's going to happen. And uh, I mean, I met, I had the guy, the, 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 the writer who altered states, the out-of-body guy, Jeffrey, um, he's a famous, he's, he's, he was on LSD hanging out with dolphins. He's there sending me <laughs> strange stuff, toys and champagne, going, this is like, you know, my neither world experience that I just love to trip out in, you know, at the encounter. I mean, you know, the people I met there were incredible. It was, to me, it was like the poo ride is the most favorite uh, breakthrough kind of thing, along with Mission Space and its ride system. But but this LAX thing was the by far the most personal thing. No one bothered me. No one cared about it. Management didn't want to know anything about it. They were afraid of it. It was like, Eddie, just, I don't care. Just don't go over budget. Just go do it. And so it, 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 nobody told me what music to play or what elevator to do. And I, I could do anything I wanted. And yeah, you're not stuck to an IP, some, right? There's no, there was no, no, no. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, you know, it could be what we got to design lava lamps. I mean, where are you going to get to do that? So, That's um, so cool. and, and, and the other Imagineers work so hard on it, putting, you know, I did the sound effects for bargain. So when the bargain pours your drink, it goes, it was lit, lit liquor. I mean, who couldn't, who couldn't order a second one of those? So, uh, you know, I don't know. It was the most personal of any thing I got to work on. Uh, it was just so fun to have some autonomy in a big company like that. And, and by the way, like I, they gave it to me. So I have to thank Marty Sklar and Ken Wong for doing that. Mm-hmm. You're making sound effects. And that sounds like that it comes from some of your background as a voiceover person. And you, you have quite a lot of uh, experience. In fact, he is probably one of the be- best Walt Disney impressions I've ever heard. <laughs> but uh, but, but uh, talk about um, some of the voiceover you- work that you've done uh, for the parks in different places. Well, you know, um, it's easy when you can choose yourself. You know, you'll, you'll notice I get the voiceover jobs and the things I control versus the things I didn't control. So I, I don't know that I passed the audition for everybody else, but certainly uh, – I uh, was trying to make like retail stores more interesting. So we put Shrunken Ned, which is kind of not really a fortune teller. He's a joke teller in Adventureland. Who became Shrunken Ned, the jungle's only self-savage witch doctor? Eddie, is that <laughs> you? That's me. Of course, oh, my you know. goodness. We love Shrunken yeah, Ned. You know, or if you're a Walt Disney World fan, it's now arriving from a grand circle trip around the Magic Kingdom. Yeah. Wow. I, I usually have a little more reverb there. Last call. What? <laughs> So I did a lot of those uh, different voices upstairs, windows, and Disneyland Paris, and mm, 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 no, no, the guy who's getting his teeth pulled <laughs> his out, teeth or pulled. Uh, so you know Mickey and Pluto and Goofy and uh, all your favorite <laughs> Disney characters are here. Uh, we decided to do something exciting and fun here at Walt Disney World, and uh, you know, of course, uh, my very first thought here. Uh, my last request was to get uh, Michael Graves to do Flipper's Tomb right there as a hotel <laughs> at Walt Disney World. No, I, I, I don't think Walt ever said that. 
No, no, but, uh, no. 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 He had a lot of fun, but I was, I was thinking it, man. He was thinking yeah. it. Walt was thinking it. Yep. So, uh No, it was always fun to do uh, Radio Toontown. <laughs> you know, the different voices. And uh, it was always a thrill for me to be a Disney character, you know, even uh, the little bit parts, you know, character voices in rides and, and stuff like that. There's quite a few, quite a few fun, fun things out there, you know. Yep. Uh, Space Mountain, of course. We have the, ignition. Uh, launch sequence. Yeah. Yep. Launch sequence engaged. We have ignition, you know, so... No, That's there's great. quite a, quite a few fun. And things. we wouldn't we it wouldn't it would be a travesty if we didn't talk to you a little bit about that new Adventureland um, uh, that we know you would d- uh, help design or led, I suppose. Well, uh, Nate and I were both Jungle Cruise skippers, so you gave us ah. a, a bit of a home um, that ah. we can call our own. Um, and actually, we were we interviewed Mike West, who's at Universal now, but he did uh, apparently he directed the voice um, for the. The Q area, that new Albert A. Wall, yeah, Albert that's A-Wall. a Disney World, of course, but yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh. I have not heard that. But Mike actually directed me because uh, it's always not good to always direct yourself. Mike directed me on all the Radio Toontown stuff, so oh, I was yeah. doing sound effects and crazy voices, and I'm thinking of the radio host of that. So Mike's a great guy. And now the Disneyland Boathouse is kind of cool because I wanted it to be a tip of the hat to the 1955 version, but it really needed to have a story. And what I'm personal favorite thing is um, French uh, and British colonial design, where the mm-hmm. British and French, after some of these wars, when they were still colonizing the world, they, in the 19th century, they built lots of buildings in foreign countries like Indochina and things like that. So I thought, let's really amp up the story of the boathouse. And one of the things people, visitors to Anaheim would notice is the boathouse was supposed to be very much on the edge of civilization where nature was eating the boathouse away piece by piece. And Knott's mm. Berry Farm was famous for, we did a thing where the tree grew through a shade cover in a building. We just built the building around the tree. So there was a tree in front of the boathouse there. So we wanted to build the boathouse. I think they've since changed it. But the idea was the boathouse was sinking and that you'd see that even the, the second floor of the boathouse is not even level, that the whole thing is slowly descending. So part of that, like going up the lift of a roller coaster, the anticipation of the Jungle Cruise was you're really not in control. So if you're upstairs, there's, you know, framed pictures of dangerous insects. Yeah. There's an infirmary with bone saws and malaria. <laughs> things. I mean, why not amp up the, the risk side of the Jungle Cruise a little that we're not really in control here. We're taking That's you right. on a voyage. Civilization is kind of like Florida, frankly, where there's, you know, there's giant, beasts next to you at the swimming pool i think they're um, iguanas those are i thought those were rubber props when i was there in fort lauderdale yeah they, they, you know that you're just really uh, the gators are only four signs away from you they're just yeah they're on the side of the road that, that literally to kind of create that sense to the jungle cruise and then chose all the music the 40s music that we wanted to ramp up the time so someone's rocking my dream boat and lots yeah. of fun songs and uh, try to really imagine, uh, you know, that was the playlist for the boathouse. Well, and also there was originally supposed to be, I saw an early version of plans, maybe a giant anaconda up there in the rafters. And uh, I think that got value engineered out, but I know it was in the drawing and someone mentioned it. And then of course oh. there was a, there was kind of a cutout right by the, by the entrance where a boat was supposed to be suspended and as if it had sunken, you know, sort of moored to the, to the deck. And, uh, and of course the cutouts there, but, but no boat that, 
that got taken out. I don't know if you had anything to do with that. But. Well, I think those were just conversations. I, I know the anaconda was like whatever we could salvage. We got a bird. I think there was a time when there was a snake up there in the early first few mm, yeah. years. Uh, they might have taken it out and moved it, but there was a snake up there. And we just wanted to make the queue more interesting and fun like the other queues. Why give anyone anything less? And then the boat, we, we, you have to draw the boat as if it's in dry dock in order to create a proper dry dock. You have to imagine things and method act how it's going to be. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you don't just put, I can't stand people putting like six crates and turning them all a wacky form of crooked and then putting <laughs> a little pulley there and stenciling at funny angles. Do people really, when you see the real world in crates, do people really stencil things on at random crazy angles? Yeah. Only theme park designers do that. So you, <laughs> I, you, you want to kind of bring a little bit of movie set realism little cinematic stuff. So I think maybe the, I think we wanted a boat, but I don't know that we had one to even give, but, um, but I love how the skippers have embraced it and they play with the chess game in there and, yeah. you know, with the, with the entry cartridge shells and stuff like that. I feel like we're going on a, a grand circle tour of Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom <laughs> yeah. on Main Street, uh, through yeah. Adventureland, Fit Fantasyland. I've got to ask you about uh, the name of, I think one of your first post Disney companies, uh, moving into the, the Tomorrowland theme uh, in the future of Progress City, uh, I'm bringing I'm bringing it back. Progress City it. is an imagine uh, ex Imagineer COVID think tank to figure out what a guest experience should really be versus what uh, either local authorities or people just trying to get open are doing. Because we I can't see those things as the answer. They're wonderful band aids to get things open, but you know as you know when you reduce capacity, that's not a business. So. To me, what's really necessary right now is having a vision of the guest experience and applying technology to that versus the hardware store we find in every airplane terminal as we walk in, which are all those Band-Aids that became permanent. I would hate to see that happen to our world and ruin the endangered. I see it as an endangered species, like protecting animals. Guest experiences are those endangered species. I'm bringing back Progress City. The site's about to launch. And one last one last little thing about the Jungle Cruise. You may not know this, but I used to be Fast Eddie, the skipper of KRUZ-FM, which was a <laughs> phony radio station where I would make anti-Disney and funny commercials about the rides and record it on cassettes, something before your time. And it would play <laughs> no. above the Adventureland Bazaar in Juba, which was known as the Jungle Upstairs Break Area. <laughs> and, and all the skippers would come up there and listen to this phony uh, making fun of supervision radio station. And I wasn't even an employee. I was doing it for fun because my friends were all jungle skippers at the time uh, after I quit working at Disneyland. And so I would make these and they go, well, who is this fast Eddie, this guy doing this radio voice, you know? And I would say, what has gotten into the Matterhorn? Or what do these funny <laughs> jokes, you know? The voice of the jungle, cruise FM, you know? And uh, and so, they, so I became the banana ball, which is the sort of yeah. sorted lowest common denominator slip and slide in the beer on the floor of the, of the Orange County fairgrounds DJ. And I was doing that for a while. So if you can come across a 1979 or 1980 t-shirt, I was working at knots while doing the jungle cruise, uh, you know, mascot DJ skipper of the jungle cruise. So that's, yeah. And uh, so there's actually underground stories. 
on the Jungle Cruise page, someone has a copy of that. They posted a photo of it, and uh, we'll see if we can get a hold of it and post it on ThemedAttraction.com. Wow, well, well we, we don't have to go nuts here. You know? yeah. <laughs> I, I, I would like people to finish the podcast. You know? yeah, that's I don't right. want them to True. turn them off early. A lot of these are <laughs> in my listening. years of reckless abandon and uh, lack of uh, you know, mental fortitude. Well, I want to I want to hit on just a couple more things before we wrap up, and and uh, one is um, what you're um, currently um, up to and what you're what you're doing because the the um, future of this um, of this industry um, really does need to be passed on and, and and built into those who are coming into it. But uh, you're not done, and so um, just looking looking to you to kind of think th- uh, through how you're helping clients in these. Um, these times? Well, you know, a lot of what we're doing, um, I do luxury stuff, you know, and thank goodness during the COVID thing, there's a yacht to do or something like that. But on the other hand, and those are fun indulgences, frankly. Sure. It's like, those are like encounter restaurants, you know? Yeah. On the other hand, um, the company as the commercial side of it, a lot of it is analysis, like looking Mm. at an airport and saying, what is the perfect guest experience going from the curb to the gate or doing all kinds of other things like this, that are taking what I've learned and trying to apply it to frankly broken things that none of us enjoy or helping customers get open. Now, right now in the, in the COVID thing, I'm sort of focusing on really the guest experience. I just, I just watch the news and watch these things. And I think everyone means well and everyone's struggling to do the best they can, but I feel like that's the, the best, uh, the best thing that we, we can be doing in that area. There are still clients, though, where we're, we just finished a Porsche dealership, which is really cool in, uh, here in California, where when you walk into the dealership, there's a glass floor. And you look through the glass floor, 356 classic Porsche rotating in the basement. And it's called the Vanderground. You must go down <laughs> to the Porsche Vanderground and see all the classic Porsches down in the Porsche Vanderground. Yeah, it's going to be great. So you can imagine that. So a client just said, Eddie, Porsche, you know, like Ferrari, you know, they don't let people play with their dealerships, but we have a basement and we love to kick things up a few notches. And you did our Aston dealership for us or whatever. What can you do to this Porsche dealership with this thing? So part of our suggestion was, why not do a museum where you can buy the cars in the museum? Wow. You, have, wow. you, want, it, you, want, you, you long for air-cooled? There it is. There's the free 56 or there's a, you know, that. And frankly, I just drove the $225,000 electric Turbo S and turned it into Turbo S mode. Yeah. It has a, a Starship Enterprise like warp drive sound. When you hit the gas, it actually has a shock absorber in the headrest for recoil from you. No I've kidding. Women, oh no, this is the next level. I sell your Tesla stock. I think Elon <laughs> Musk is in such trouble. Porsche is so at home with 150 miles an hour in a car. This car. You heard it here first, folks. Yeah. And that dealership was wonderful. And they go, Eddie, thank you for coming to visit. Here's the keys. Like, aren't you going to go with me? Oh no. You don't want me with you. And, uh, I have an old 911 myself. So just getting in this car was an otherworldly experience. So to me, working with those brands that are doing next level, to me, that's the new trackless ride right there. Wow. This new Porsche. And uh, I think they have a base model that's like, you know, 80,000. But uh, the thrill of turning it into Sport Plus, that when you tell Porsche you want Sport Plus, it's Sport Plus. Not, wow. not that this is about that, but... Uh, I love working with these brands and private aircraft is exciting. And we just finished one for a client that says, Eddie, I want Surf Force One. 
Mm. I like to fly around the world surfing. What would? You, how do you bring Malibu inside Into of an aircraft? an aircraft? So we did that with them. Wow. Yeah. So to me, those are like, as an Imagineer, you know, I used to have an office where the, at the beach. And I said, you know what? I don't want a fourth wall. One wall is infinity. It's looking out over the ocean with a sketch pad and just thinking of what can be. And I would encourage everybody to look at that. And right now, the, we have a lot of broken businesses and it's putting people out of work. So, you know, focusing on uh, not, not near term, not, not right now COVID, but really master planning the future uh, is, is a noble, I think a somewhat noble and, and certainly needed effort. We're, we're all in a great tribulation, believe it or not. So, uh, well, which mankind we'll has not seen. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it's well, a way to always, to always have, uh, appreciated your vision and, uh, thanks for, uh, letting us catch up to you. If only for a, a brief moment, uh, as you jet through the sky in your, uh, streamlined, <laughs> uh, private jet, uh, at least zoom background there. <laughs> yeah. They're telling me it's almost time to land. So I got to, I got to put up my tray table. Yeah. You better put your tray table up. Yeah. And the encounter uh, uh, purple martini here. So, well, well again, thank you so much. We're um, thrilled to have you on. If uh, enjoyed yourself, my name is Freddie. If you didn't, uh, my name is Nathan and uh, we'll, we'll have you sometime. Um, well, well, next time you can have Herb Ryman come. Oh, <laughs> you heard me rhyme and about, uh, what he thinks of, uh, you know, where the company has gone. <laughs> I think that's uh, well, an invitation that is for deep. next time. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. Yeah. Good. I was going to quote Herbie Ryman to you just a second ago, and uh, I'll leave it with this. You said uh, you were talking about Main Street, uh, Disneyland Paris, and that you directed your teams to just do something beautiful. Uh, Herb Ryman said something about Walt. He said, Walt came into his office, looked at some drawings and said, no, no it's not good enough, Herbie. And Her he said, Herbie, just do something that everybody will like. And Herbie looked at him like, how does one do that? How do you do something everybody's going to like? Well, you know what? It's a profound statement, as Walt Disney sometimes did. And when you really think about it, if you are thinking about what is the guest and what does the guest aspire to, Walt Disney put people first. So it is about doing something people will like. Herbie was hoping for a free vision, and he didn't get it because right. Herbie is an illustrator. He's not a visionary. He didn't get that vision. But the real essence of what Walt Disney was saying is absolutely, positively the number one thing. And I'm glad you uh, ended with that. Yeah. You know, because well, I think that is, so just let's all go out there and do something people will like, not, um, uh, I don't know, when, 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 if, if I'm wearing a mask and I feel like I'm in a hospital, I don't know that I've escaped to yesterday, tomorrow and fantasy. Uh, that's so, uh, but we gotta, we gotta deal with things as they come, don't we? We sure do. We have to figure it out. Well, Thank thanks you, again, Eddie. guys. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Sure. Well, that is such a ton of fun to listen to Eddie's stories. I mean, I really uh, couldn't imagine that one of my favorite rides as a kid was uh, sort of overlaid and, and uh, designed by this guy and uh, just continued to be part of his career throughout, just kind of uh, bringing so much cool and interesting and transformative experiences to life. Um, 
As a creative director, though, I, I, I'm starting to see some of the parallels that I see with you, uh, Mel, uh, the, some of the work that you do within uh, Storyland Studios and uh, seeing how you guide and direct uh, the creatives uh, underneath you. So um, you, you've, you've used the word and uh, describing that as sort of keeping the creative North Star. Talk to me a little bit about uh, how a creative director like you, like Eddie Sato, like Tony Baxter, like so many of the others that we've uh, had on, how do they keep that creative um, direction going throughout a years-long project? Boy, uh, well, you know, I think, at least from my my perspective, I think one of the, the skill sets that's often kind of um, maybe uh, underrated or overlooked by particularly those in the fan community that, you know, kind of, you know, see these creative directors trotted out, you know, as, as kind of <laughs> spokesmodels, you know, the projects at <laughs> press release. So they, they kind of get some notoriety. They're kind of the rock stars of the industry. But, you know, it's not because they necessarily draw uh, the best, uh, you know, although certainly many of them do. It's not necessarily because they uh, speak the best. It's not necessarily because uh, they have the the most prolific uh, ideas, um, because there's, there's a balancing act there when, um, basically I I think that, that missing skill set or underrated skill set is just the idea of being able to facilitate and articulate uh, a vision, uh, and, and really kind of, uh, bring the right people together to really kind of, uh, figure out what that, uh, we talk about that narrative North star is, uh, and then basically to be the champion of, of kind of making sure that all the, dozens if not hundreds and thousands of design decisions that happen all are marching towards that same internal logic and north star and a lot of times that's really almost a process of kind of uh editing you know and editing out all the (laughs) prolific great ideas and editing out uh beautiful drawings that you know are heartbreaking to tell an artist that uh you know something about it it doesn't quite fit isn't quite right so there's times to be honest with you that it, it really feels like uh, almost like uh, uncreative <laughs> because you're trying yeah, to yeah. trying to you know you're 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 <laughs> leaving something on the cutting room floor that is just so beautiful it's a work of art in and of itself but um, but yeah like I said I think it's just knowing what the heart of the story that you're trying to tell is and uh, being and not only being able to be passionate about it yourself but being able to kind of get everyone uh, of the dozens uh, if not again hundreds of people. Um, that are going to be bringing that story to life to, to also fall in love and, and be just as passionate about what you're trying to deliver from that uh, construction guy, that that show set fabricator, um, you know, foam cutter, you know, whoever, you know, down the line, uh, you know, for them to understand the story and want to get it right uh, and to be able to kind of self-edit themselves along the way. Well, it's been a, a ton of fun to learn from Eddie as we went through this. Hopefully we'll be able to have him on again. Um, oh, my goodness. I almost forgot what time it is. It's time to get the boat back, return it to the rental place. So should we head back? Let's do it. All right. Until next time. Thanks, Mel. The Themed Attraction Podcast is hosted by Freddie Martin and Mel McGowan. You know, we're so honored that you choose to listen to our show. Can we ask you a quick favor? Would you leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts? When you do so, we'll show up in more search results and be introduced to many more creative folks like you. Thank you very much. 
We want to thank our very special guest, Eddie Sato. Eddie is super active on the socials and always shares great ideas, history, and tidbits you won't want to miss. Follow him on Twitter at Boss Angeles. That's B-O-S-S underscore Angeles. Find him on LinkedIn and on Instagram. You can see many of his images from past work and his current slate of themed attraction projects. Find out more at SatoStudios.com. Get access to more stories and interviews at ThemedAttraction.com. Start your own profile, discuss the latest creative advancements, and interact with your fellow theme park designers around the world. Follow the action on Instagram and Twitter at ThemedAttraction, and join our active discussion group on LinkedIn. One thing you need to know is that on ThemedAttraction.com, you can find tons of past articles and notes from Eddie Sato. Hope you'll visit us there soon. Connect with Mel by email via mel at storylandstudios.com or follow him on Twitter at Mel McGowan and Instagram at Visioneer. You can find me at freddymartin.net and follow my adventures at SkipperFreddy on Instagram and Twitter. Our theme music was composed by Rob Watson, other music provided by The Lost Dogs. This episode was designed and produced by the one and only Dr. Barry Hill. Barry's the author of a brand new book on the history of regional theme parks. With contributions from Rod Decker of Cedar Fair, Rick Bastrop, and our very own Mel McGowan, Imagineering an American Dreamscape tells the story of regional theme parks and the strong-willed visionaries behind them. Some of the stories you may have heard, many you probably haven't, and it's a fascinating tale to tell. Grab a free preview chapter and get email updates at rivershorecreative.com. You know, Mel, Barry is known for having a green thumb. In his backyard garden, he's always proud to point out his towering, nine-foot-tall hibiscus flowers. But I'm most impressed with his lovely little two-foot-tall lobiscus. Thanks for listening, folks. 